You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, my name is Blake, and welcome to Abandoned, the All-American Ruins Podcast. Per usual, I have just a quick note before we get started. This is a bonus episode, so if you haven't listened to the show yet, I would suggest that you hit the pause button and go back to the beginning, to the prologue, to season one, to Anamoya, so that you can get a sense of what we're doing here. This is how weird the universe works, I tell you, because you can't even make this shit up. There it was. The big, yellow, abandoned building was on Zillow. I said, What? And I read through it, and it had just been put on the market, I want to say three or four days prior. It didn't even make sense. It says it was a 100-year-old monastery. It's for sale for $550,000, 27 acres on the Hudson River. I freaked out. I go, what? I run to the bedroom with my laptop, and I go, it's for sale. She's like, wait, we were just there. I go, I know we were there, and it's for sale. It's a monastery. This past April, when I was sitting on the deck at Hudson House and Distillery, once an abandoned monastery, now a low-key, classy community watering hole, I felt a little uncomfortable. I watched my boyfriend and his parents enjoy cocktails while I sat back, almost ten years sober, and wondered why I felt this discomfort. At first I thought it was pretty obvious. I can't drink booze, so being in these kinds of social scenarios can always be a little awkward. Not even so much for me, but for people like Jake's parents who know I'm sober and don't know what they're quote-unquote supposed to do, or not supposed to do in front of me, as far as alcohol is concerned. But it wasn't that. Maybe it was that I was at a former Christian house of worship of some kind, though I didn't know what kind yet, but definitely something Catholic, which meant it likely had its own skeletons in the closet— and I always feel a bit nervous in religious settings because of my upbringing. But it wasn't that either. What the hell is going on with me, I thought. You know, here I am sitting at this lovely restaurant and distillery where folks from all walks of life can gather to enjoy the distant views of the regal Hudson River, sitting with a group of perfectly lovely people, and my anxiety was beginning to elevate. I stood up, walked around, did some somatic stuff, humming to myself, rubbing my stomach, blah blah blah, and as I approached the deck to look out over the water, I turned back to look at the building behind me and it hit me. I was feeling bummed out, because I didn't get to explore this place when it was abandoned. I was too late. A strange feeling, complicated to be sure, because this is a beautiful space, but that's what was going on. I was feeling like a weird... FOMO. Which is why, when our waiter approached the table, I launched into a hundred questions. What's the history behind the building? When did y'all open? Who owns it? And our waiter slowed me down and said, I don't know the specifics quite, but I know who does. 
And the next thing you know, I'm being given a full-blown tour of the Hudson House and Distillery, once a hub for the Christian Brothers, a Catholic organization, guided by Charles Ferry, the owner, a colorful and compassionate character, and I'm learning all about the story behind how he and his wife made the absolute impossible happen by transforming a formerly abandoned Catholic monastery into a community watering hole. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, someone has to share this guy's story. And that's next on Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. Hello, my name is Charles Ferry with the Hudson House and Distillery, located on the Hudson River in West Park, New York. I first met Charles, a go-getter in the truest sense of the word, the afternoon I took my boyfriend and his parents to Charles Palace, a.k.a. the Hudson House and Distillery. It's a stunning restaurant, bar and distillery, event space all in one. And it's actually the location of my first ever in-person event on Saturday, September 23rd. You can get tickets to that now on allamericanruins.com, but I digress. And it's so weird how um, things in life, just sometimes they're the right timing and things are the right moment. Charles came up to our table and within minutes, I got him talking about the property. And within seconds, I realized I was going to have to profile this guy. Oh, I'm sorry, you saved an abandoned monastery from complete ruin and had the guts to salvage it and transform it into a beautiful community hub that brings culture to the region, jobs to the community, and sets the example of what preservation can look like if we simply invest in strengthening our country the honest way? Yeah, sure. Let's talk. I feel like the universe guides us all in a certain way, if you open your mind to it. I immediately gave him my elevator pitch, but it didn't take much convincing, because one of Charles' strengths, not just as a businessman, but as a person and a preservationist, is he believes it all happens for a reason. Like meeting you guys was very, very interesting, that, that moment in time, and uh, even this building and everything that happened and transpired over many, many years, it must have been for a reason. And it's why I think his story, and how it led him to save an abandoned monastery from ruin against all odds, and transform it into a beautiful community space is worth sharing. Oh, and the best part, and I mean this in the best way, Charles is a talker. I asked him one question, and bam, off he went. And not once did I have to interject to get him to talk. He just talked. Impressively. Meet Charles Ferry, founder of the Hudson House and Distillery in West Park, New York. Uh, I grew up in a very modest household in Hopewell Junction, New York. They called Hopeless Junction. I don't think it's that hopeless. It was a, it was a pretty nice place to, to grow up in. And, um, you know, we didn't have a lot growing up, but I think as a young person, you're, we're very impressionable. And I saw a lot of people with big homes and cars. And you, know, you wonder, like, why do they have all these things and we do not? Hopewell Junction, New York, a small hamlet about two hours north of Manhattan. When I hopped onto YouTube University to learn more about it, I couldn't find much except that it got its name because, well, it's a junction. <laughs> a railroad junction, where a bunch of different rail lines converged. Other than that, I found a bunch of real estate videos, tours of McMansions, videos of people walking on the rail trail, that kind of thing. It's a very... Um 
quintessential small American town. There was the Grand Union, which I worked at, uh, the shopping center where you got your food at, uh, local pharmacy, uh, pizzeria, local pizzeria, very, very small town. A city neither small nor large, simply a normal community where people live together, work together, and do things for each other. I was born in 74. I graduated high school in 92, and it was just so um, innocent, I guess. You know, you knew your neighbors, you talked to people. I think it was just a different time than what we're going through now, where um, people wanted to learn from each other and talk and and go out together. But I think as a young person, we want to get the hell out of there as fast as we could. Many are at work, doing things for other people, things which mean a great deal to the others, including Richard himself. While Richard sleeps... The men at the dairy are filling bottles with fresh milk. And long before daybreak, Richard Milkman picks up the milk and delivers it to them. And I think that's why everyone said it was hopeless junction. You don't ever want to be stuck there. If you're stuck there, boy, you are really screwed. From the late 1970s to the early 1990s, getting stuck there was exceedingly possible. Hopewell Junction's close proximity to the massive IBM plant in Poughkeepsie made it the perfect place to live and thrive. But... Charles' childhood was mirrored by the rapid decline of IBM operations in the Hudson Valley, and he saw its effects on his hometown. August 7, 1944. The opening of the computer age. IBM at Harvard University unveiled the Mark I. This computer system is another example of innovation at IBM. The IBM application system 400. IBM continues its commitment to provide a lot more function for a lot less money. Of course, much has happened since 1956. We're having our problems with the economy. We have to make the alliance says it expects IBM's systems and technology unit to get hit across the country, from Poughkeepsie and East Fishkill, New York, to North Carolina. Reports and of hundreds laid off from IBM plants around the country, and we know true. several. IBM is laying off roughly 100 employees five months after laying off 180, and three months after reducing the pay of. Here and then the last layoff they had, and then the one before, it's getting down to very few people. And IBM spokesman. And an IBM. The search has continued for new and better ways to meet the information challenges of today and tomorrow. It has been a search for a system with more power. Anyone working for IBM, it seemed like they were rich to me. Their families were rich. They had these homes. They had these uh, personal computers. They had the the Nintendo systems. I would actually just stay at their houses, wanted to live there to play Nintendo for the first time and just like wait, you have these things? It was the craziest thing to me. So it was kind of interesting how that was all, it was all IBM. And then it was like ripped out and everyone just became uh, moved away. A lot of people kind of left and it was actually decimating to the Hudson Valley for sure. Charles' family didn't work for IBM. On the contrary, he meant what he said about a modest upbringing. He watched his parents, particularly his mother, work hard to put food on the table for the family, and it affected Charles deeply. My father worked for General Motors in Terrytown, and uh, he started working on the line, blue-collar job, worked on the line of General Motors and uh, worked his way up to a desk job in the purchasing department of, of, of paint. And then my mother was um, growing up, she was a babysitter, uh, kind of a homemaker. She worked as a waitress at Denny's. And uh, so she was, you know, just honestly uh, trying to take uh, jobs to make a little extra money for us. 
I think someone had come to Denny's one night, the local realtor uh, in the area, and he goes, you know, you'd be so good at real estate. And uh, and it kind of got it in her head. But, it, you know, my, I think my mother was, you know, I, confidence. I don't have confidence in myself. And uh, maybe I'm a, I'm a woman. It's this man's world. And he's supposed to do this. So she was, you know, doing her best for the family. But, um, I, you know, I think that put it in her head. And she, um, it was amazing that she, it's kind of, sorry that she you know picked herself up got herself together and she um she went for it hold on a second this was the moment in our interview where i thought okay this guy's something else Here's this former, extremely successful Wall Street guy, which we'll get to in a bit. And he's sitting here in front of me on mic, genuinely crying just tears of love for his mom. And it was a clue into his story and how it was possible that he went from being this moneymaker of astronomical proportions back to his roots, back to who he really is. A good guy. A decent man with big dreams. And, um... It's a, you know, I'm very proud of proud of my mother because um, that's a hard thing to go through when people uh, assume you should be a certain thing, and um, so she ended up taking her license and um, became exceptionally successful, which is a me, which is like you know that's the American dream. You want to you want to just go out there and, and have a chance um, to live your dream. I look back, I'm like, wow, like what a, what a time of um, her, you know, doing this. And then um, my father got involved with, with, with real estate and wow, they both grew a company not having a clue, you know, what to do, but they had multiple offices and things like that. It was kind of great to see, you know, them achieve their dream. Inspired by his mother's rags-to-riches story, Charles went after it, chasing money, that is. And I mean big, big money, obsessively. I was obsessed with money because I had none. And I was so sick and tired of struggling. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to buy things. And um, my sister, who was a few years older, she was uh, actually down on Wall Street. And I said, wow, well, my sister's down on Wall Street and she's making money. Well, if she's making money, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to take over being the next Gordon Gecko. And down to Wall Street he went, and he made a lot of money. But as we see time and again in this country and around the world, really, the promise of money is not the promise of happiness. I'll preface it this way. I was eight years out of college. Uh, I had a house in the Hamptons. I had a brownstone in Hell's Kitchen. I had multiple cars. I was flying in private jets to Monaco around the world, managing over $100 million and up. Uh, we were the ultra high net worth division of the bank. And, um, you know, you would look at me and say, whoa, look at you. You've got the world, you young guy. you got everything at your fingertips. You've got money. you got all this stuff going for you. And, uh... It was probably one of the most difficult and disturbing and depressing times of my life. I was so unhappy. (laughs) 
So, he dropped it. All of it. Got into New York's hospitality scene, owned a nightclub here, a sports bar there. He even started a vodka business after touring a distillery in Russia, where he began his education on how to make, you guessed it, spirits. I went to Russia. I'll be honest, I had a fantasy of what Russian vodka and production was about. I thought it was gorgeous models and diamonds and gold and amazing vodka and you're drinking and partying. It was nothing like that at all. Uh, these facilities were actually disgusting. They were dirty. They were using the cheapest grains they could find to distill. The water was not pure. And I was actually stunned. And I was walking through and I was just like, what is going on here? And they kind of got pissed and they said, ah, you Americans, we could piss in a bottle and you would drink it, think it's the best thing ever. We don't have to do anything. And that, that made, you know, I learned a lot about human nature at this point in time. When I came back to the States, I said, whoa, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen and heard because up until then, I was like, it's the best. It's going to be amazing. So I learned that, wow, um, just because people say something does not mean it is truth or the gospel. So uh, I came back home and I said, well, I certainly am not going to create something that like that. I found a distillery in Bend, Oregon, on the West Coast, that was willing to teach me uh, this business. And so with them, I created a company called Star Vodka. And I was hand-selling it to people, meeting them, but we focused on non-genetically modified grains. I'm very into what we put into our bodies is what we get out of it. And off he went. But as sometimes in the world of capitalism, it didn't work out. Not because the product wasn't good, but because, well, sometimes things just don't work out. It's something I think about a lot, actually, when I'm exploring abandoned industrial spaces, specifically. They were working factories, businesses at some point. So what happened? It could be a billion things, but that did not deter Charles. In fact... At this point, he was growing tired of this whole city life in general. And that's when he remembered his hometown, Hopewell Junction, and the surrounding very fertile Hudson Valley. I wanted something focused on the, the purity of the land, the beauty, and have people from all around the world to come and experience. Uh, and just to kind of take a step back from the, the, the struggles and stresses of life and to enjoy a property. Now... It, it was in my head for so long, but I, you know, the original thought was, um, you know, rolling hills and beauty of, uh, say, the Hudson Valley and just to showcase the land and have a distillery. And my wife uh, does weddings and, and events, so she would have weddings on the property and people could just enjoy this beautiful setting. And they could also learn about what we do, and that's obviously making booze. But that was the pipe dream. Actually achieving that idyllic scenario, well, it took a lot of time a lot of work and pain and confusion. Because as Charles got older, married, and had kids, he began to question his reality. Now in this time, I've gotten married. The pressure is building because, you know, you get married, you have obligations now. It's like, what are you doing with your life type of thing? Uh, are you just going to be fumbling around uh, forever? That's a scary thing. Uh, it's very scary. And um, I, there were many days I was doubting myself. I was saying, you know, what am I doing? Maybe I should go back to finance. I did so well in it. So why not? And maybe that's going to be my life, right? I'm no special. Why do I deserve this wonderful, beautiful life? So maybe I've gone horribly wrong. And uh, it might 
be a bad thing for me. So I had a lot of things going on in my head. Years passed. Charles and his wife spent days and weeks and months driving back and forth to the Hudson Valley, looking for the impossible, a spot on the Hudson River. Eventually, after all that searching, he found a place, a beautiful old manor on the river with a bunch of history. But for one reason or another, the meeting to launch the idea fell through. All that work, years of work, and essentially, he had the door slammed in his face. Angry as hell, Charles, alongside his wife, once again got back into the car to drive back downstate, with nothing to show for. I'm pissed off. I'm furious. Uh, I get in the car. She's trying to calm me down the best she can. And um, back to New York City, we're going. And uh, she was like, well, just, I know, I know you're pissed, but just, can we stop off at this building? I saw it on the way up. It looks abandoned. And I was like, I don't give a shit about this. I want to go home. I'm, I'm done. She goes, well, just stop. the. Just, we're going home anyway. Who cares? We might as well, we might as well just stop. So she actually forced me to stop the car. Uh, it was gated. It was all abandoned. It was this big yellow structure with a huge brick structure in the back of it. And uh, it looked like it was on the Hudson River, but I couldn't really tell because it was so overgrown. You could see a little bit, but I was just, it was confused about where I was. We pull off, it was gated. We snuck down on this property. And here we are on this property, looking in the windows. I'm looking around and I'm like, what the hell is this thing? There was no signage. There was nothing. It was just sitting there, sadly. Um, kind of like, you know, crumbling, uh, sad, crumbling inside. And she goes... We should call someone. It looks abandoned. Maybe they'll sell it to us. And for me, being so angered at this point in time, I was like, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? I'm over this. I want to go home. And so off we did. Went back to New York City and uh, never thought I'd think about this again until the next morning. This is how weird the universe works, I tell you, Um, because you can't even make this shit up. Uh, So the next morning I get up, it was probably five or six in the morning, and I'm agitated, angry, bitter, scared, terrified. But I get up on Zillow and I did my radius searches on Zillow. (laughs) Once again, I put that big radius in the Hudson Valley area here, started looking through, and there it was. That big, yellow, abandoned building was on Zillow. It was, uh, and so it just stunned me because I had that in my head, you know, this yellow building, and there it was. I said, what? And I read through it, and it had just been put on the market, I want to say three or four days prior it didn't even make sense and um it says it was a monastery a hundred year old monastery it's it's for sale for five hundred fifty thousand dollars, 27 acres on the hudson river i freaked out i go what i run to the bedroom with my laptop and i wake i go it's for sale i wake her up and she's you know she's kind of groggy she's like wait we were just there i go i know we were there and it's for sale it's a monastery Yes, a monastery. It had a pretty lengthy history, originally having belonged to the founder and president of the Hudson Valley-based Ulster Savings Bank before he sold it to the Durkee family of Durkee Condiments, and so on and so on. But then, in the early 2000s, the Christian Brothers, one of the many sects of the Catholic Church, took over. But the reason it eventually closed? Well, you can probably guess. Well, sadly, um, a pedophilia case happened. 
uh, it was on, it was actually in Colorado, Denver, Colorado. And um, what happened was they lost this lawsuit early 2000s, and the Vatican was involved, and the Christian Brothers, um, this uh, national organization, they had to take the hit for this horrible situation. And they were educators. They didn't have the money to withstand this. So they actually had to file bankruptcy and subdivide this 27-acre parcel. I wanted to feel some semblance of sorry for this unfortunate loss at this particular monastery. But during my research on this episode, I came across a 124-page document called The Anderson Report on Sexual Abuse in the Archdiocese of New York that, quote, contains the names of diocesan priests, religious order priests, and other religious clerics associated with the Archdiocese of New York, including those who were assigned within or working in the geographic boundaries of the Archdiocese, who have been accused of sexual misconduct with minors. And a few of the priests on that list had at one time or another worked at that particular monastery and school, And one of them was even still living in the Christian Brothers West Park residence up until 2014. So, no, I don't feel bad for them. But, as the old cliché goes... It's always darkest before dawn. Charles got the building, then the permits, and he got to work. And it was hard, hard work restoring an abandoned monastery. Massive architectural cleanup. So getting Hudson House and Distillery off the ground took a lot of patience and persistence. And, well, making friends with ghosts. This damn building fought us every step of the way. The spirits of this property, let me tell you, there were ghosts for sure, and they are still there. Um, Some terrified our workers, construction people. There are stories of um, noises, things being knocked over on people uh, as they are working. And this building has taught me a lot. I will tell you, I've learned a lot from this building. We took six horrible years to renovate this property. We ran into government bureaucracy, red tape, stonewalling. We hit every wall you can ever imagine. And that that really pushed us to the brink of oblivion because, you know, we have debt payments and we have uh, construction loans and you're on, you know, you have to, you have to keep this thing going and, and going through six years and you hit COVID and, uh, you know, we didn't qualify for stimulus money. We got nothing because we weren't an open business. Being a Wall Street guy, I pressed Charles about this comment, because even the Republicaniest of Republicans knows that we don't really regulate a lot of things in this country, not without corruption anyway. And he agreed. And in fact, the many regulations we do enforce in this country, surprise, surprise, help local communities out. See, in order to set up a distillery on the Hudson River, the state of New York required a couple things of Charles. Good things that immediately set in motion not just a craft distillery or an eventual boutique hotel, but a community hub. 
creating jobs and partnerships with other local businesses. A farm distillery or farm winery or craft brewery, they actually have to purchase 75% of their grains from local farms in the state of New York. So by doing this, you're actually helping the local farms grow. It's a groundswell. So everyone is helping each other. And you can see to this day, the growth, the agritourism is exploding because of this. It is brilliant. It's amazing to see um, glimmers of hope that government can do and can help business and they can work together. Um, It can happen. And this little tidbit of information was exactly why I wanted to interview Charles in the first place. Why I consider him to be an innovator in the urbex space. And it's complicated for me. Because on the one hand, I love seeing these abandoned spaces frozen in time exactly as they are. My safe spaces where I've reclaimed the childhood explorer in me, nurtured the artist in me. I've said it over and over and over again, places where my imagination runs wild, heals me, whisks me away from a dark world. But on the other hand, they can be symbols of a failed democracy. The insidious fault lines of capitalism. Giant industrial complexes shut down. Jobs lost. Communities ravaged, destructors of the environment. The good that could come from revitalizing these abandoned spaces It just takes a little imagination, and someone like Charles, with enough good fortune, enough capital to responsibly come into a community, not to gentrify it, but to revitalize it, not to invade it, but to make it new, create jobs, help bring attention and income to a struggling region, open up a space for folks to gather, laugh, celebrate, enjoy each other's company. Do you ever think to yourself, I'm a preservationist? I am an innovator. This is actually going to massively improve the life of this community? No, I didn't. You know, it was an idea. And um, we did think that it would um, bring people uh, to the area. Um, I don't think we thought it would be uh, what it is, uh, what it's going to be, too, as far as like massive amount of people that are really coming to this place from around the world, which is uh, shocking to us even. But um no, we didn't really look at it that way. We um, we just wanted to have an interesting business that really offered something unique and different for people to experience. And it was all about the experience. And I felt like, um, I, I think that people want to do things that are different now. They want to feel like they're either learning or, or growing or exploring uh, in different things now. I, I think that um, it's not like the old world where like, you know, you go into a hotel and you stay there and whatever and go to like a restaurant. And, uh, yeah, that sounds great. But I think people really want to immerse themselves into communities they want to go hiking they want to go biking they want to explore they want to go to cool restaurants they want to learn or what are they doing here differently and they take that with them and i think that um with with all we've gone through obviously the last few years especially that um and the scariness of the world now that any it it could end at any moment so why not enrich yourself with as much of this beautiful world as we possibly can and learn so much and uh, enjoy each other and learn from each other. I mean, why not? Because it could all horribly end. None of us get off this planet alive. So why not make it the best you possibly can? And now, the property is gorgeous. It really is. Stunning. They've transformed a derelict monastery with a seedy history into a beautiful space right above the Hudson River, right above the train lines. They're building a dock at the water, 
There are trails. They're renovating a second building on the property now. A boutique hotel. It, it, it's a feat. And all it took was a little, my favorite word on this podcast, imagination. The Hudson Alston Distillery is a unique, one-of-a-kind type of renovation project, taking a old, historical, stunningly beautiful manor that became a monastery and really rehabbed, brought back to life to this really iconic, magical property where people from all around the world can enjoy it. They could taste, eat, drink, forget about the problems of the world, forget about their own stresses and issues, and all come together uh, as one and enjoy this beautiful piece of property. I've always been a very curious individual, uh, just in general. I've always been a dreamer. I think curiosity is probably one of the most um, incredible attributes, human attributes, that one can hopefully tap into uh, as much as possible because being curious makes the universe, the, the planet, what it is today. I've never... Um, you know, obviously you want money to survive and wonder, but it was never my driving factor for me personally. It was always just creating and making things interesting. And this property was just almost set up for this next phase of its life. It was almost, it's just too good to be true. It's so weird that this old manor, this monastery actually is perfect for a hotel. Uh, it has a lot of space for a distillery, has a place for people to explore the property. I mean, it's just weird. It's very, very weird to have something like that, almost like perfect. If you're just tuning in for the first time, then again, welcome to Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. The entire first season is available now wherever you get your podcasts, and season two comes out at the end of September. Oh, and speaking of September, don't forget, for the first time ever, All-American Ruins will be doing a live show in partnership with Hudsey and Atlas Obscura at the Hudson House and Distillery. We'll be producing a multimedia experience on Saturday, September 23rd, and I would love for you to join us. To learn more and purchase tickets, you can just go to allamericanruins.com, where you can also learn more about my adventures to the ruins of America and beyond. Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast is written, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Blake File, with studio space courtesy of Radio Kingston, WKNY AM 1490, FM 107.9 in Kingston, New York. Special thanks to Ida Hakala, Jimmy Buff, and Manuel Bloss for the resources and encouragement, Carrie Donahue and the faculty of the SUNY Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship for the guidance and mentorship, and to Charles. Thank you so much for sharing your story, my friend. <laughs>